0: Um, that's I appreciate that, Billy. I'm so proud of Billy. I know you have been his extended family for a number of years, and you're as proud of him as I am. Um, and, and I appreciate so much the love and support you've provided to, to Shelby and uh, to Billy over the years. This evening, we're going to talk about a story that should be very familiar to all of us. I can remember when I was just Kinley's age, uh, a few years older than that, uh, when I would walk into a little Sunday school classroom and the teacher would teach us these basic Bible stories, but she'd make them come alive. And I remember getting to paint Noah's Ark on the wall and, and the animals two by two and, and hearing about the story of little baby Moses being placed in a papyrus uh, a basket and floated down the Nile River for Pharaoh's daughter to find. And, and, and these stories are part of a narrative that has made up my life now. And and even though I'm not, I don't have any Jewish uh, uh, blood in me, I, I feel like that's part of my identity. Nonetheless, as part of spiritual Israel. And I know you as a Christian probably feel that same way. And so tonight I want to talk about something that should define everything that you do in life. It should be part of your life narrative, your life story. And it's an old story. And sometimes we think it's something that happened back then. It was part of a different age, and it doesn't have any relevance for us today. I want to I challenge that thought tonight. I want to suggest to you that the story of Moses is a story that has no end. It'll be a story that we'll be telling and celebrating even in eternity. Now, before we get there, I, I want to make a comment about storytelling. Because uh, if you're like me, it, it, that's something that I've always enjoyed. It was a good story around the campfire, uh, in, the, in a devotional at home, uh, in the classroom. My favorite professors were the ones that could give me some, some war stories, some, some real, real world experiences. And the Bible is no different. In fact, it uses the same basic story arc that that Disney and and Pixar and and Hollywood uses to to, to captivate your imagination. And the basic story arc consists of, of someone who has a problem. And they're going to come in contact with a guide or a hero who's going to help them overcome that problem. And that story, as it arcs and flows, is is something that uh, captures our imagination in large part because we can put ourselves in that person's uh, situation a lot of times. And I think that that's the reason why the story of the Israelite people resonates so much with us, the church today. Because many of the the problems they had to overcome are our problems. They were oppressed and were persecuted. They deal with their own internal sins and so do we. They are blessed by God in innumerable ways and yet they still grumble and complain. Does that sound familiar? And I think that sometimes we forget that they have a purpose to play today, and that is to be our schoolmaster, our tutor, there to be our examples so that we can learn the principles that are eternal and that cut across the ages and apply them in our lives so that we live according to the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of man who seems to keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Now, with that introduction, let me begin by just recounting for you very quickly the basic storyline. Now, keep in mind where this story fits. I'm holding in my hand a Bible, and I've opened it up to the first page of of the book of Exodus, the last page of Genesis. Now, those of you that are familiar with the Bible, what... If I put my left hand, the book of Genesis, and in my right hand, the entire remaining books, 65 books, the uh, the remaining 65 books of the Old Testament. I have to keep going here. If I do that, Genesis in my left hand, the rest of the Old Testament in my right hand, my wife's double cousin. Now, that's only something you know what's in Alabama, right? Double cousins. Alan Webster taught me this recently when he was up in in Jackson, Tennessee at a lectureship. He said, Which one of these, my left hand or my right hand, is holding more years? My left hand or my right hand? Which one's holding more stories about more time? It's my left hand, isn't it? It's the book of Genesis. That the Old Testament represents a, a about 4,000 years, give or take. And that in my left hand, in the book of Genesis, I have the majority of those years. I have 2,500 years. And in fact, I can split Genesis again and Genesis chapters 1 through 11, and then Genesis chapters 12 through the end of the book of Genesis, and which one has more time? Again, my left hand. Why? Because that's going to represent 2,100 of the 2,500 years. So what's going on in the second half of the book of Genesis in the last 400 years of the first 2,500 years of human existence is the story of a family. It starts with Abraham and then his descendants and, and when you are reading this story, their lives are overlapping, but the totality of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Joseph is only going to span about 400 years. And so when we get to the book of Exodus, we have this new character, this new protagonist enter the story. His name's Moses. And I want you to just contextualize that story in terms of you've already had the majority of human history, as far as what's recorded in the Old Testament, already take place. And yet God still has a lot of work to do. And it's called the Exodus. Now, one of the challenges of the Exodus is to understand the book of Exodus and understand uh, why it has relevance even for us today. So let me show you this next slide. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, could almost be a proof text for us tonight. It could organize our thoughts. I'm tempted to do that. But instead, I just refer you to a great website. It's called the Christian Courier. And Wayne Jackson did a great lesson taking this text and just walking you through the story of Moses from this text. Here's what it says. Just get the sense of why it's relevant today. By faith, Moses. Now, faith's still important today, isn't it? Right? Except without faith, you can't even be pleasing to God. So it's essential. So the fact that they're connecting faith to Moses immediately should make him relevant to your life. And here's what it says about him. When he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents. They were Levites, by the way. Because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict by king you mean Pharaoh and You're in the country of Egypt so at the end of Genesis you've got 70 members of Abraham's family all going to Egypt and Pharaoh honored and respected that family because they had helped them get through the famine and yet when this book is, when this story picks up in Exodus, it's now 400 years later, and that Pharaoh is long gone. And the new Pharaoh, it says, doesn't know anything about Joseph. And instead, he sees the descendants, including Moses' family, as this threat. Because they're growing and multiplying, and God is blessing them, and they're strong. There are hundreds of thousands later on in the book of Exodus it records that there were 600,000 Israelites men, not including the women and the children. And so Pharaoh looks at them who they, and realizes that they could be a, a pretty formidable enemy if they wanted to. and because he's forgotten what they did for what, what Joseph did for the, the Egyptians. He can't see the upside. He only sees the downside. And so he reacts out of fear. And in fear, he's going to pass an edict. And this edict was not his first effort. Instead, he enslaves the Israelites. And they still get blessed by God. And they're growing and multiplying. And so he then takes the next step. And he tells the midwives, now look guys, you've got to stop. You've got to stop delivering the male children. We need to go ahead and just, you know, make sure they don't make it. And of course, the midwives, the scriptures, again, speak as a good example of faith, did not obey Pharaoh. It's one of the first examples of, civil, of morally justified civil disobedience in the Bible. And so then the king, Pharaoh, he passes an edict for all the people to whenever they see an Egyptian little boy, I mean, a a Hebrew little boy in Egypt, they're to throw him in the Nile. And so that's the edict that you see here being referenced in verse 23. And so by faith, Moses, 40 years passes according to the Scriptures when you put all the verses together, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now wait a minute. We just blew right past the story you learned in Sunday school, didn't we? Because it was by faith that his parents refused, were not afraid of the king's edict. And so what did they do in their courage? Instead of throwing that baby to his death in the Nile, they laid him carefully in a basket that was prepared like a boat with pitch. And then that basket was then carefully placed among the reeds so it wouldn't get tossed to and fro. And lo and behold, providence working, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the water, sees the baby, and uh, Moses' sister is watching nearby to make sure the baby, uh, to find out what happens to the baby, and realizes that Pharaoh's daughter is, is... it going to take this baby and immediately offers to bring her mother to serve as a Hebrew wet nurse. And Pharaoh's daughter takes her up on it. And Pharaoh's daughter raises Moses as her own. Once he got to a certain age, he was then taken back to Pharaoh's daughter from the wet nurse, which was his actual mother. Scriptures don't indicate whether she ever knew that, whether Pharaoh's daughter actually knew that. But then you get, 40 years later, Moses growing up, and it says he refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter. Isn't that interesting? That he had a very clear sense of who he was. That despite uh, privilege and status and prestige and, and material wealth that was probably beyond our imagination, he still identified with the slaves. It's amazing. That he would choose that and not get drawn in, enticed by the world. And yet he not only maintained his identity it caused him to take action. If you truly identify as a, as a child of God you're going, it's going to affect you. And you're not going to be able to be passive about it. And so, verse 25 says, Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. A lot there, but the main thing I want you to get is that he saw one of his Hebrew brothers being mistreated, being beaten harshly by an Egyptian and was overcome with righteous indignation and slew, killed, I don't know that it was premeditated. may have been manslaughter, involuntary. But he killed that Egyptian. When Pharaoh found out about it, the scriptures say that Pharaoh became angry towards Moses. And so Moses fled for his life. And so for the next 40 years, he goes to Midian. And there he, he marries a woman, Sephora. He has a child. And he tends to the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro. And there's this... Beautiful peace that you see described about him. He's content. God's blessed him. He has a wonderful family. And it's easy to just sort of coast at that point. But as he's tending the sheep one day, you know what happens next. God appears to him in a burning bush. And in this from this bush that burns but isn't burned up... God appoints him to be his messenger to take a message back to Pharaoh and rescue his people. Now keep in mind, forty years have passed. He's put that behind him, and now God is asking him to go back into the lion's den, so to speak, not to mix my my, my biblical story metaphors too much. and so for 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 us, The significance of this saying by faith over and over and over again is a call is not culminating when he decides to obey God. That came natural to him. It's going to culminate later in the story. And ultimately, when God's will is done and he, he keeps the Passover mentioned there in verse 28. So let me walk you through a few things, because. In any good story, if that story is going to resonate, it ought to bring something new, something novel to your mind. And in this story, there are a number of firsts that I want you to see. You've got the basic storyline where he goes back and, and, and there is going to be an attempt by him to convince Pharaoh to do the right thing. And he's going to uh, basically Pharaoh's going to be uh, basically laugh it off and and refuse. God, knowing this, is going to have to send ten plagues, and those plagues are going to be very severe. They're going to be involving all kinds of pests and disease, and ultimately the loss of the firstborn of every family in Egypt. Save the Passover now. I want to show you just a few of the firsts in this story. The first one is in chapter 5, verse 6. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, you read for the very first time in the Bible this unique concept where Moses is telling Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh's refusing and in fact doubling down by treating the people even more severe. And Moses is discouraged. And so he goes back to God. He says, I've made made things worse. And God says, no, I promised you I'm going to rescue them from slavery. And then he uses this word for the very first time in Scripture. Redeemed. I'm going to redeem my people. You and I understand how powerful the concept of redemption is because it's only by the redemption of of God's only begotten Son, that blood, that we have any hope of heaven. And likewise, except for God, the Israelites had no hope. And He's promising them that He's going to redeem them. And what's interesting about this verse, this is chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, It's not just the first time, but it's how he says it. He says over and over again, I will redeem. I will rescue. He is saying, I will, I will, I will, seven times in this short passage. To emphasize that this is God getting personally involved in rescuing man. Let that sink in for a second. We all know the verse, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. And so the Son of God became personally involved in this world to save us. That wasn't the first time God had done that. God is personally involved in salvation for one reason. Because He loves us. Despite our sin, despite our shortcomings, He hears our cries. And he wants to rescue us. But then there's a second first in this story. And it's the first real oppressor of God's people being described here in the story of Pharaoh of Egypt. And in chapter 3, verse 9, the story opens up talking about how God uh, says, Behold the cry, of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Later on, when Moses is handing out the law in Exodus chapter 22, he's going to remind the Hebrews how they were oppressed. And now the law of Moses says, you do not oppress and treat wrongly a sojourner. Because you remember you once were a sojourner in Egypt. That concept of oppression, of injustice, of not being treated with dignity and respect is fundamental. Fundamental to understanding the moral law of God that started from the very beginning in the way Cain treated Abel and all the way to the end. And that principle of God being a God of love and justice both simultaneously is what this story is celebrating and one that I know you hold dear to as well, but there's a third thing, and that's the concept of salvation. Another first in this, at this point in Scripture, in chapter 14, verse 13, after. Um, uh, Chapters 12 and 13, which lay out the Passover meal, which was to celebrate the way that God was going to carry out justice for those who oppressed His people, but at the same time was going to show love to those who obeyed Him and put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and on the lintel, And they were then to eat that lamb with bitter herbs and unleavened bread in a hurried fashion, not understanding that's exactly what they're going to have to do the next day. But then in chapter 13, it teaches them you're going to be celebrating this meal every year. You're going to have a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread to remind you that we serve a God of justice and a God of love simultaneously. It's a powerful point. So powerful that an entire feast of one week was used to celebrate, to remind them of that. It's not just... Rescue it's not just blood. It is a story about the very nature of God and the moral law, which he expects us to obey Love and justice together now when you get to chapter 14 then and you look at verse 13 you have this word salvation being used for the first time because even after the tenth plague Causing, as God predicted, Pharaoh to, to not only let him go, but tell him, hurry, go, go, go. He changes his mind. And Jesus and God predicted that and told Moses before it happened he would change his mind. And sure enough, he does. He starts regretting, giving away all this, letting all of his slaves go. And he goes after them. And they catch up with him at the Red Sea. And you know what happens. God tells Moses and those Hebrew. People that are fearing, once again, their utter destruction, their doom. I'm going to rescue you. Moses, pick up your staff and hold up your hands. And the waters part. And just as the Hebrew people were saved, salvation, first reference in the Bible, you with me? By God, through Moses... Parting the Red Sea so they can go through the water to salvation, to Jordan's bank on the other side. And then their, their enemies, the water collapses on them and destroys them. That's how God rescues them. In the New Testament, that becomes a powerful metaphor for the salvation that you and I as Christians enjoy as well. That just as they went, Noah went through the water with eight souls, just as Moses... Is in His people and holding up the, 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 the staff of the snakes, serpents in the wilderness. There's so many stories in the Old Testament that are examples of God rescuing His people that the New Testament uses us to teach us, to remind us. We serve the same God. He's doing the same thing in our lives that He did in their lives. and we We're like, why didn't they appreciate it? Why didn't they get it? Oh, if He had done that for me, I would never have grumbled. Really? Have you grumbled lately? And hasn't what he done for you far surpassed what he did for them? Now there's one more f- first, and this is where I connect it up to what I was telling you earlier, that this story of Moses is one we're going to be celebrating for an eternity. Now the reason why I say that is in, in Exodus chapter 15, you see this song of Moses. They are celebrating how God rescued them, how he saved them. And guess what? If you go to the book of Revelation, you see that those who are in heaven are singing a new song and the song of Moses. I want you to recognize the fact that there's a continuity, that God's plan has started from the very beginning when he when he told that serpent that the, the heel of man would crush their head his head one day all the way to the end when he is celebrating in heaven with those faithful of the old covenant and those faithful in the new covenant and they're singing the song of Moses and the new song of Christ now here's a here's an idea let me let me, uh, with all that said, let me shift gears. I don't know which button, I've got so many buttons going here, I don't know which one to hit. Alright. If we started out in the garden, right? In this wonderful relationship with God. We were in His presence, we were walking in the cool of the evening with Him. I, I can't even wrap my head around that, Right? I'm more like Moses. When you, when you, and, I, and when I think of God, I think of the mountain. I think of Mount Sinai, right? And I think of the, the lightning and the thunder and the rumblings when I think about approaching God. I can't even get my head wrapped around the Adam and Eve version of being in the presence of God. I'm barely able to picture in my imagination Mount Sinai. And I want you to see, though, that the story of Exodus, the whole second half of the story, the first half is the story I just told you, and that story stops at chapter 18, and that's what we teach our kids. And the second half, we sort of, you know... It's, it's the old law being laid out, you know, the Ten Commandments, and it's this building of this tent they call the tabernacle. And I mean, it goes into some specific details. I mean, they spent a whole chapter telling you here's the plan and a whole other chapter telling you how they built it, exactly pursuant to the plan. And I'm like, okay, we got it. You built the tent. Move on. No, no, no. Don't move on. Understand what the whole story is about. It's about getting us back into that intimate presence of God. Like Adam and Eve have. That's God's plan. It's always been His plan. And He's been slowly working us back to Him. Just sort of shooting us like you would a bunch of, uh, of sheep. And, and here, through in this, in this, with the, on Mount Sinai, He's not just giving them a law. To, to, he's trying to show them the purpose of the law. It's to give you real freedom from sin. And it's something we don't understand. We think law is binding and restricting and and negative and, 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 and not something to celebrate. And he's like, no, I'm trying to rescue you spiritually. You need rules. These rules will give you freedom. If you're enslaved to your passions and your desires and your lusts, you're not free. You're no freer than a dog when you're reacting to your lusts like that. You need law because the law is going to free you. It's going to give you an ability to to uh, tap in to your divine nature. We're made in the image of God. What does that mean? It means we have the will, the reason, the capability, the capacity to choose to do good. To rise above our animal instincts, above the culture above whatever circumstances life has thrown at us. I don't, I don't know what kind of situation you had growing up at home. I don't know if you had a, had a perfect mom or a perfect dad. But I'm telling you, if you allow that to enslave you, if you use that as a crutch, if you use that as the reason why you do that to your children, or that's the reason why, you're, because of this life experience, this baggage, you're not as faithful as you know you ought to be. Then you need to know the story. That's the story of Mount Sinai. He wanted His people to come up to Him. They were afraid of Him. And so He gave them these laws to help free them from that guilt. To help them understand that they could know that they could know that they could know that they're saved. And, And you've got to first recognize what sin is. You've got to first recognize you've got a problem in order to overcome the problem. But ultimately, He's pointing to this hope And it's in the form of a tent. He's like, build this tent just so. And what I'm going to do is, is you're too afraid to come to me, I'm going to come down to you and dwell in your midst to give you a little down payment, a little taste of what it means, what I've got in store for you for an eternity. And that tabernacle that seems so boring to see the description of it, it's God's presence. And that's an amazing, it should be an amazing thing in our lives. Sadly, they get the tabernacle built. And you know what happens? Even Moses, the scriptures say, couldn't go in. The glory of God was just too intense. He couldn't go in. Have you thought about that? And so, what's the point? Well, the point is, he needed to write another book called Leviticus to show you how to go before the God, to be in His presence and, and to teach us slowly what true righteousness is. So that one day we will be able to boldly stand before the throne of God. And folks, that's the end game. This story arc, it started in the garden and it's going to end with you being intimate once again with God. That His light, His His awesome power is going to be the sun and the moon to you for an eternity. And if you can't stand that intensity, it's not because He hasn't shown you the way to be in His presence. He brought His Son on earth, and He taught you a very simple plan, and He's allowing us to partake of not just His love, but His grace and His mercy. Now, one more thought. These commandments, yeah, they're brought through Moses, and you know the story. Moses has to, God has to write them twice because Moses breaks the first set when he sees what the people are doing at the bottom of the mountain, while God is giving him, giving them the keys to heaven, literally teaching them how to come into His presence. They're down there creating golden calves to worship instead but when the second set gets written think about that for a second there's ten commandments two tablets and the first half the first four commandments are about what coming in the presence of God aren't they it tell you who to worship God and God alone right they tell you how to worship they tell you who not to worship right it's all about Worship is not some ritual. Worship is what we were created to do. Let that sink in for a second. If you'll recognize that your purpose on life is to commune with the divine and understand that that kind of ability to worship and adore and to glorify the God of heaven, then suddenly it makes sense to spend the first half of the Ten Commandments focused on how to do that correctly. The second half the second half is useful, no doubt. Because you can't say you love God if you don't love your neighbor, as John taught us. And so you've got to understand some basic human relations and how to treat each other with dignity and respect, because after all, we're made in the image of who? God. And so you need to know how to do that. Listen to um, these examples. The fifth commandment. It's about the sanctity of human authority. The sixth commandment, the sanctity of human life, murder. Seventh commandment, the sanctity of of relational intimacy and marriage. The eighth commandment, the sanctity of of working, material stewardship, not stealing. The ninth commandment, the sanctity of truth, not lying. The tenth, the sanctity of proper motives, not lying, not stealing. How to be a good husband and wife. What's all that about? How to honor your parents? about relationships with each other as folks created in the image of God, so that that doesn't interfere with our ability to have a relationship with God himself. It's horizontal rules so that you can have a vertical spiritual life. Now, once you see that simple point about the Old Testament uh, Ten Commandments, I want to just say this point in passing because I only have a couple minutes left. But these aren't new rules. You know, we we divide human history into three ages. The patriarchal, the mosaic, and the Christian. And what I just want to just sort of put out there for you is that these rules existed before Moses and they exist after Moses. Either specifically or in principle. The only one that needs to be taken up to a higher level of abstraction is keeping the Sabbath. But that's still, in principle, worshiping God the way He wants you to worship Him. Now, what do I mean by that? Think about it from... (laughs) before Mount Sinai, the first three commandments dealing with worshiping God. Bible had anything to say about it? Cain and Abel about how to worship appropriately. They get into a big fight over that, right? There was worshiping going on. Noah comes out of the ark. What does he do? First thing. Worship. These weren't new commandments. Worship God. Oh, that's a neat new idea. No, that's something they've been doing. What about the... uh, the fourth commandment. Keeping the Sabbath. That's a little trickier. No. Think about it. When God, when they started complaining about not having food, God sent them what? Manna. What did he tell them? What did they not do? They didn't collect the manna when? On the Sabbath. That's before the Ten Commandments come down. You with me? It was a basic teaching already in existence. Uh, the, um, The fifth commandment, remember Ham was cursed for dishonoring his father by not covering up Noah's nakedness. You've got to honor your parents. Or the sixth commandment, Cain and Abel again, murder. We knew that was a problem before the ten commandments. The seventh commandment, you can be seen in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the story of Judah and Tamar. The eighth can be seen in Rachel being accused of being a thief. The ninth In Abraham being depicted as a liar for omitting the whole truth regarding his relationship with Sarah. The tenth can be seen in Lot's wife being depicted as being covetous and looking back. Being turned into a pillar of salt. The moral truths of God haven't changed. He's just made them more and more clear. And so he cleared it up on Mount Sinai only so that the Lord could clear it up even more. On the Sermon on the Mount. And expand on it and say, yeah, it says don't murder. I'm telling you, don't even call people names. Yeah, it says don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't even look upon a woman with lust in your heart. Why? He's not trying to restrict you and control you and beat you down. He's trying to liberate you. He's trying to give you true freedom. It's only possible when you submit to God. You're either going to be enslaved to Satan and sin or to God. I'm going to stop there. We're going to finish this up in just a few minutes. But I want to just ask you to think about a children's story, maybe in a way you haven't before, in a personal way. How has that story made a difference in your life? And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. We talked a little bit about uh, one of the old stories in the Bible, the story of Moses. And I want to just make a, a simple point, and that is that That story, that story arc that we talked about of of somebody, the people of Israel, um, uh, children of Israel having a problem and needing somebody to come alongside them, a guide or a hero, that story is not a story about Moses. Oh no, it's not about Moses. Moses isn't the hero. He isn't even the guide. That story is about God. More specifically, that story is about God incarnate. God's Son. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, what it says? It says that Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, was there in the wilderness with those people. When they were hungry, God gave them manna and quail. When they were thirsty, Christ was the rock that followed them. The rock, most people believe, is the one that, that Moses struck and brought forth water that's why God was upset with Moses for striking it. If in fact it's pre- pre-incarnate Christ, you say, please, you don't demand. Now, stay with me for a second, though, because that Moses that couldn't, couldn't go into that tabernacle that God spent all that time teaching him how to build because of the, the light was just too bright. Hmm. You know, he died, never even got to go into the promised land. But do you remember what you learned in the gospel story about Moses? On the Mount of Transfiguration, God, he's in his presence, Son of God. He's shining radiantly like the God in the tabernacle. You with me? And Moses is finally able to stand. In His presence. That was a sweet moment. I know He was there to comfort His Lord because of what he, had to go, he was about to go through. But don't lose the import for Moses personally getting to be able to participate in the presence of God in that moment. And then it, it continues on the road to Emmaus. Jesus, when He's trying to explain to His disciples that, hey, He's not dead. He did exactly what He came here to do. And they were afraid and they were perplexed. He turns them around on the road to Emmaus. So they go out and go tell the other disciples and have some courage and faith. How did he do it? By turning to the law of Moses. And teaching them from the words that Moses wrote in the Pentateuch. All the things that foretold what the Messiah, Jesus, would have to go through. And then... In the gospel sermons that you and I appreciate so much, there is a, a, a lot that Moses, the Scriptures teach, had to say. In Acts chapter 3, when Paul is preaching, he quotes Moses when he's preaching on Solomon's porch. He said, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 18. There is a a beautiful uh, verse in in Romans chapter 10 verse 19 that makes it clear that Moses predicted the gospel would not just be preached to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. I, I say all that to say that this story that we teach children, should mean something to you. It's a story that foreshadowed a greater story about our son, God's son. And that ability for God to not just save us from one oppressor, but from the oppressor, Satan himself, to overcome death itself, not just temporary slavery, but eternal slavery to sin. And you and I, as I mentioned earlier, will have an opportunity if we will but obey the Gospel. Which means that we believe that Jesus Christ is in fact the Son of God. And that we believe His promise that whosoever believes in Me and is baptized shall be saved. And we are willing to confess that belief and we're willing to uh, uh, repent of our sins and turn away from sin and towards Him in obedience and faithful living for the rest of our lives. Because if we men- as we mentioned in the Bible class, if you're willing to do that, the Lord promises you that one day you'll be in heaven singing in perfect unison the new song of Christ, while His other faithful from an earlier covenant will be singing the song of Moses. And God's scheme of redemption will finally be brought together And we'll be one. If you're not yet a Christian, you don't have that kind of promise. You don't have that hope. It's it's extended to you. It's, It's offered to every man and woman. But you have to choose to accept that grace. We hope that if you haven't yet obeyed the gospel, you'll want to do that tonight. We're going to sing a song here in a moment to give you an opportunity to do that you're already a Christian and you recognize that you've taken for granted this this relationship, this privilege that you have to be called a child of God, a spiritual Israelite. And you need to repent of sin that's starting to uh, pull you away from God. He said, if you'll draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. He said that if you'll confess your sin, Jesus is still just and able to forgive you of that sin. Whatever your need is, please come as we stand and sing.